welcome to This Show is All About You, a show about all the ways in which you and me connect as we and what that means for all of us. I am not your host, J.D. Winnegan. He is actually calling in from on the road again. Hey, J.D. Hey, how you doing, Stacey? Thanks for uh, filling in for me in the studio today again. Appreciate it. Are you kidding? It's like I've got control of everything. Um, <laughs> you can find out more about J.D. at wordsbyjdk.com. You can also check out his social media feeds. He's on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And once again, I know that you're going to want to thank Airway Science for Kids. They are an unbelievable organization. I obviously know about them because every week I hear JD talking about the work that they do. He works with them. And I have had the pleasure of uh, learning about them on my own, seeing all the incredible work that they do, and finding all the really creative, interesting ways that they are able to connect kids with opportunity in aerospace, science, uh, flight, aviation. All those things. All those things, aviation, aerospace, yeah, they, uh, they work with underserved youth uh, primarily and uh, do a lot of stuff, both in-house programs, virtual programs. They facilitate relationships of all different kinds with educational entities, with, uh, with non-governmental organizations, internships with companies, you name it, all in the name of, of helping kids who don't normally have access to all these different avenues into careers in aviation, aerospace, the chances to do so. It's pretty amazing stuff what they do. Um, you can check them out, by the way, everybody, at airsci.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org, or you can reach out to them directly via email uh, using the address info at airsci.org, and they'd love to talk with you. So uh, they're a longtime sponsor of this show. Really appreciate it. So there yeah, we go. They're pretty amazing. So it is episode 62. It is March 14th, 2022. I feel like this is a logbook. Um <laughs> You have titled the show, What Do We Learn From Here? I believe, yes. do you have a haiku for this week? Um, you know, I don't. One of the, It's one of those rare moments where it just, it just didn't come together. I've been on the move for a few days and just didn't put one together. So if you come up with one, feel free to add it in at the end of the show. I will have to think about it. And, you know, I don't, I, maybe with all the things going on in the world, maybe science, or silence is uh, more powerful. Yeah, certainly. You know, there there is that. It's it it is a. I mean, we're we're going into the third straight week on this show talking about Ukraine, and and for good reason because it's it's obviously not just about the uh, Russian invasion of that sovereign country, but all the uh, all the things that it signifies, the dangers that come with it, all the uncertainties, all those things, and hence why I've had a lot of people asking me to keep to keep going in this conversation this week. So I figured. This week, we would uh, continue taking a look at that with a little bit of historical background. This time, I thought we would focus a little bit on the historical background of the West, which essentially means the U.S., North America, and, and Europe uh, in this whole situation. So that's, what I, that's where I figured we'd, we'd go next. Does that okay. make sense to you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, none of it makes sense yeah. to me, honestly. So, so yes, that totally makes sense. Okay, well, and I know you have a few questions you want to ask and things like that and questions that other people have asked and sent in, so we'll, we'll address some of those. Yeah, I think the most important thing to start with here is that, you know, um, when we're taking a look at, I guess, really, if we want to go all the way back to the end of the Cold War, 1991, right, which is, geez, 30 years ago, right? Yep. Um, 
all, you could say all of this has root in, in that event, right? As I've mentioned the last couple of weeks, uh, Vladimir Putin himself has said that the worst calamity of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and that is a massive statement when you consider everything else that happened in the 20th century. And it certainly is one of those moments where I think we, we should take a dictator at his word, <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that this is what he means. Uh, he really does mean that. And uh, so in that sense, if, if he truly believes that, then it makes sense to say that all, a lot of what he's doing is trying to recapture in some way the glory, the power, the prestige, the security, if you will, of the old Soviet Union as he saw it. And, uh, you know, there have been a lot of the last week or so as Russia has really struggled uh, continually with its invasion and has been increasingly isolated from the outside world and the rubles collapsed and companies have pulled out and all that. There have been a number of people kind of joking that he's getting exactly what he wants, right? A, a country that is economically increasingly impoverished, isolated from the rest of the world. People are talking about a new Iron Curtain coming down, that maybe he's getting exactly what he wants. And uh, maybe that's true, but I think it's important to recognize as we talk about this that that by itself, if it's true, may have consequences that we don't like. Right? It is, it's, I said last week that however this turns out, Putin is going to find a way for the result to somehow justify his own view of history, particularly his view of the West as, as, an, in, as an implacable enemy of Russia and of the need for Russia to secure its borders in order to be safe and to thrive. And so it's, there's, there's a little more flippancy than I think is probably healthy <laughs> um, in, in Western circles right now about how this is going. So I kind of wanted to start there. Um, and, you know, and also I want to say, too, before we jump into this, this question about where the West fits into this, that it's easy to look back in history uh, at any time around any event and say, well, look at what happened. We should have done this. We could have done that. We would have done those things. Uh, that's really hard to do. And so in kind of going back and taking a look at all this, it's not really to, to place blame, but to effectively establish context for why we are where we are. And when we do that, particularly when we de- detach from blame, we can then say, all right, what are our options moving forward? And in the end, that's kind of what we need to be thinking about is how do we move forward from this and what do we learn from here? Well, absolutely. And I think about uh, you regularly talk about history doesn't repeat itself. However, that said, Mm -hmm. you know, we can learn from history. Absolutely. Yeah. And to explain that is, is there, there really is nothing in history that really repeats. Uh, You know, Mark Twain is famous for saying history doesn't repeat, but it sure does rhyme. (laughs) Um, there are, you know, that, that has some truth to it. I think it's, it's what's more important in any given situation is not to say, is this history repeating itself, but more importantly with the peoples involved, Ukraine, Russia, the West, whatever, how are they viewing history and the events going on themselves? And are there different interpretations of what led to this? And if that's the case, which it almost always is, it kind of seems to me to be pretty important to understand as best we can the historical perspectives that other sides of this are bringing to the table as much as we can, because it's only through doing that that we can probably have better conversations about how to end this whole thing and get out of this mess. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it. well, I'll save my I'll save my commentary for when you answer some questions. Yeah, no, no problem. No problem. I mean, it's it's and I think one of the things that I, I, I would say, too, is, is, you know, in, in this sense, as I mentioned last week, you know, Putin's got a very particular, very powerful view of, of what the West is about. And 
I've noticed that in the last week or so, there's been a tampering down of the rhetoric coming out of uh, Europe and the United States, at least among officials, of using terms like we're going to crush the Russian economy, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, calls for Putin to be removed. These are all things that just feed his his view of things, right? That, that, that type of language I don't think is very helpful because at some point, it seems to me, um, if peace is going to come out of this anytime soon, the West is going to have a role in giving Putin a way out that allows him to, in some way, shape, or form, uh, say that he didn't lose. Yeah, you know? I'm thinking um, about, it, like, the raccoon that once got stuck in my garage and... <laughs> Like it was like in the corner. Yes, I am comparing Putin to a raccoon. It's fine. Um, and then, you know, a little rabid. And so, you know, he's stuck in the corner and without a way out, it was wanting to go on the attack. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That that is the big concern. That is the big concern. And, you know, it's there's always these things with with dictators like this who people always think, well, they won't they wouldn't go that far, would they? They wouldn't go that far, would they? Well, we've been saying that with Putin for a little while now, and he keeps going further, right? So it's it's something that we shouldn't say is impossible, but but this is the role that the West can play in this is that some in some way, shape, or form, um, giving him an out. And unfortunately, um, that's going to be a real challenge because at the same time, that can't be done at the expense of the Ukrainian people who are who are bearing the brunt of this, right? And right, even so. the Russian people, frankly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. As I mentioned last week. So anyway, so those are my initial thoughts. So um, I know there's a I know you have some questions that we also had other questions come in that I've summarized. So let's just jump into those, Stacey, and then uh, and we'll see where we go. Okay, so this is a rhetorical question. I just want to throw it out there. What in tarnation is a modern leader doing bringing the world to the brink of a third world war? Why would anybody want to risk that? I mean, you know, for real, like, you know, it's great that we're getting all of these. You know, it's not great, obviously, uh, that there's all of these weapons. There's nuclear weapons. There's, you know, mm-hmm. um, chemical warfare. There's all of these things. And why? I mean, again, it's a rhetorical question somewhat. It's just it's a fascinating thing. I just feel like in this day and age, once you move forward with this, you can't go back. Makes it tougher. Yeah. Well, and, you know, of course, this comes back to the questions that all of us have been asking, you know, for the last three weeks is, is what's Putin's mindset? You know, what, what would he possibly be thinking he can gain out of this? And certainly, and again, it comes back to my statement that we, we probably at some level can take him at his word that he's, He's very concerned. He really believes that the West is out to fatally undermine Russia, yeah. that uh, and that its its security would be threatened if Ukraine moved into NATO or into the EU, right up against their borders. Um, and he truly believes, on some level, whether he's right or not, the fact is he truly believes that Russia's fate relies upon what he's doing. Right. Uh, and that, in his mind, is worth risking a larger conflict for. Right now, and this is where we start getting into, well, if push came to shove and, and NATO was going to get involved in the United States, would he be willing to follow through on all those things? Well, um, I hope we never have to ask that question, <laughs> you know, that, we, right. that we really need, never needed to address that. But uh, obviously it is worth the risk on some level. Um, and that, that kind of fits in with the last 30 years. You know, the, the, the West has given very mixed messages 
on some level to how it wants to view Russia or what it says is, uh, you know, it's where it wants to treat Russia in the world uh, for 30 years. Well, we do the same thing to Russia that Russia does to us, right? What's that? What do you mean? I mean, I think about, you know, when I was a kid and the Cold War was happening and Mm. the things that, you know, we were told, like Russia is like a dismal gray place where everybody's Mm. online, you know, trying to Mm. get some like bread rations. Um, Right. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think of like uh, White Knights and Baryshnikov and that, you know, creativity Mm -hmm. and, you know, everything is for, um, you know, a a different purpose. I mean, the view of Russia, uh, it hasn't really changed that much. There hasn't been within the United States, I feel like, as somebody that, you know, is paying attention to the news, there hasn't been that much talk about it being like this vibrant, thriving culture. Right. Yeah. And that certainly is true that that Russia um, continues, generally speaking, I think, in this country to be seen as not quite so up-to-date, right, at best, um, and for some backwards at worst. And for those of us who grew up in the Cold War, our generation and older, um, the idea of Russia as a threat has always been there because they've had nu- they have nuclear weapons, big stockpiles, they have them pointed at us. There's always that. So there's that, that level of historical distrust and animosity. There is some of that back and forth. What, but what I think is interesting is, Again, we're talking about leadership with Putin and his inner circle, not so much the Russian people. The majority of the Russian people who are younger, 20s and 30s, have no memory of the Soviet Union. Right. right? And so it's, it's older generations like Putin and, and, and older ones that have kind of gotten gripped by this nostalgia of, of the Soviet era, at least. The Soviet Union was feared and respected on the world stage. And Putin truly believes that Russia has lost that status over the last 30 years. And he's not wrong fully about that. Um, you know, certainly until just recently, the United States wasn't wasn't considering Russia its its primary strategic threat in the world. That would probably be China, right? Right, along with along with uh, you know terrorist groups and that type of thing in the Middle East and elsewhere. And so, there, in that sense, it did lose its centrality in the old Cold War superpower battle that was between the Soviet Union and the United States. It's a weird form of nostalgia, though in the sense that, you know, the Soviet society was very much struggling, particularly towards the the latter uh, decades of the Cold War that Putin grew up in. But for Putin, it's seemingly about security and about the ability for Russia to grow on its own, thrive on its own. The problem is, is that over the last 20 plus years that he's been in power, that view of what Russia is supposed to be has increasingly become dominated by whatever his vision is to the point that he has people in power that are simply going to do what he asks them to do. And, uh, you know, even the, even the Soviet Union had the, had the Communist Party, right? That right. was having some discussions about this. Oftentimes they were rubber stamped, of course, but um, it, is, it isn't historically accurate. But in some ways, um, and neither is the U.S. view of Russia, really. But that's sort of what we're talking about, and it's why I've been talking about these things the last few weeks is because a lot of people are starting to get, a, you know, getting a crash course for the first time on this is a very different place than us. This right. is a very different mindset from Putin than we have. Um, well, okay. Obviously, he's willing to risk that. Go ahead. So I have another question, and I'm sure. hoping that there's other people like me out there that are like, yeah. Um, so when I think of Russia, it's like USSR. 
the Beatles, mm-hmm. um, you know, Soviet Union, Russia. Like, so to me, growing up, it's like all this one big place. And then there's, you know, it's changed and, you know, now what it includes in the Soviet Union right. and then the the collapse of the Soviet Union and, you know, like geographically. And then that obviously is politically, um, uh-huh. you know, what's up with all of that? And, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union and once upon a time, there's some independent countries that were part of it, if I'm not uh-huh. mistaken. And Correct. why isn't Putin bullying them? Because they're not on the border. Well, OK, that's a great question. So let's 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 rewind a little bit. And the Soviet Union itself, Russia was the biggest country in the Soviet Union by far and dominated that that organization. But countries like Ukraine, Ukraine, when it was part of the Soviet Union, was known as the Ukraine, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Russia was the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic. Be- uh, Belarus, which is uh, northern neighbor to uh, to Ukraine, which is now a Russian puppet government, right, effectively, mm-hmm. was part of the Soviet Union. So were so were Kazakhstan in the south and uh, several other areas in what is sort of southwest of Russia today. That was part of the Soviet Union. The Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, that they're up along the northwest border of Russia up against the Baltic Sea, those were all part of the Soviet Union. And all of those were effectively absorbed into the Soviet Union if they didn't exist beforehand at the end of World War II, when the Nazis had invaded all of that territory and occupied most of it in, uh, from 1941 to 1944. When the Red Army took all of that back, they brought all those old areas back into the Soviet Union and then, of course, conquered a lot of the countries of uh, Western Europe or Eastern Europe and occupied them, countries that we're hearing a lot about today, like Poland Got and it. Hungary, where the majority of Ukrainian refugees are going. Poland and Hungary were occupied by Red Army troops at the end of World War II and then became, in the Cold War, became uh, effective Soviet satellite states, meaning they had to tie their economic and uh, military and political security to the Soviet Union. That was the U- the U.S. had NATO in Western Europe, and the Soviet Union created a, a similar alliance called the Warsaw Pact. In oh the yeah, East. I remember that from history. Right, right. So when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, in 1989 the process began because communism uh, was overthrown in those Eastern European countries: East Germany, Hungary. Uh, Poland, elsewhere, big revolutions in 89. The Berlin Wall coming down is the big memory we all have of that. Mr. Gorbachev, uh, but, tear down that wall. Right, that was in 1987 that, that Reagan said that. But in 89, all of that happens in the Soviet Union for the first time when there were revolutions in Eastern Europe in 1989, didn't send in tanks to crush them. Right, That was Gorbachev's whole policy. He wasn't going to do what other Soviet leaders did. And so in 1989, those countries... Poland, Hungary, all those other ones uh, in Eastern Europe, they were part of the Warsaw Pact, threw off communism. And a couple of years later, when the Soviet Union disintegrated, those other countries that I mentioned before, Ukraine being one of them, Belarus another, the Baltic states all suddenly had their independence and declared independence. And because all of them, for the most part, did not like their Soviet experience, you know, regardless of what we want to say today. Yeah, they wanted to integrate more with the West, right? More with the growing European Union, more with liberal democracy, more with capitalism, all coming out of communism and a desire to get away from being dominated by Russia. And of course, those were all areas that even before the Soviet Union existed,
existed in 1917 had been either directly occupied or dominated politically by Russia for a couple of centuries beforehand. So those territories all have a very long history with Russia. And as I mentioned last week, Putin views all those areas in some ways as rightfully Russian. And so one of the stakes here with Ukraine is that you have countries that were part of the former Soviet Union. They've already brought Belarus to heel, right? So Belarus is loyal to them. The Baltic states in particular are paying very close attention to this. Sure. Because, you know, and some of these states like Poland and others that were occupied by the Soviet Union are now part of NATO because after the Soviet Union collapsed, leading up in the, into the mid-90s, 1997, NATO expanded its treaty eastward. And, the, and the, the, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization essentially is a unified alliance between the United States and its allies in North America, Canada in particular, and Europe, that any one country that is attacked in NATO, if they are a NATO country, is seen by all the other members as an attack on everyone. Right, so the idea was to secure those countries in Western Europe from Soviet domination during the Cold War, meaning if, if the Soviet Union attacked one of them, they were attacking all of them. Right. So after the Soviet Union collapsed, a lot of those countries in Eastern Europe that had been in the Warsaw Pact said, we'd rather be in NATO, thank you very much, and be protected by the Russians in case the Russians decide to do something like they're doing now. Right. And so that's the big concern there. And so countries that we're hearing a lot about, the Baltic states, Poland, Hungary, all have their own long history with Russia that they're very concerned about. And in some cases, they are now under the protection of NATO, which drives Putin crazy. And he sees that as a direct threat. And that's why it's so volatile on that border right now. Right. It's like he's taking all of his toys and he's like, nope, they're all coming back to my playpen. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Another question that I have. I'm totally taking all of this time for questions. Uh, aren't there rules no, of engagement with war, like the maternity hospital and like, you know, these kinds of things? Like, I guess that's another comment and a rhetorical question. It just is kind of crazy to me. And maybe it's because we can consume it. And, you know, how social media and access to news is changing our perception and awareness of war. Um, that... um it's interesting. And with so much um, misinformation everywhere, you know, we can consume yeah. more, but we understand less. Right. And, you know, to answer that initial question, are there rules of war? Generally speaking, the Geneva Convention lays those out. Yes. However, Russia has in the last handful of years under Putin, going back to even before 2014, when they first made their first incursions into Ukraine and seized the Crimea, the Russians withdrew from a number of those Geneva Convention statutes. And so, yeah, so from the point of view of, of Russia, they aren't beholden to those. And so maternity hospitals being hit and civilians being targeted, those are not supposed to happen under international agreements. Um, they do happen, right? They do happen. Sure. And they can happen by accident. But there are there is a big difference, of course, between civilians being killed by accident in a war zone and being deliberately targeted. Now, the Russians are saying they are not deliberately targeting uh, there seems to be a lot of evidence to the contrary. Um, it's really difficult to know for sure because there are not necessarily independent observers on the ground who are actually safe to do that observation. I mean, we just – an American journalist was just killed yesterday, I right? So, so journalists that are, that are there aren't necessarily able to get the full picture either. And that's one of the horrifying, scary things about this is that the numbers that come out are probably of, of dead on both sides are probably really low 
um, because you can't literally cover all those different areas in an invasion of this size, a country the size of Texas, you know, and so uh, that's the challenge. And so, yes, there are rules to that, but um, no war ever follows the rules. And and the bigger the war, the more costly that rule breaking is usually for innocent civilians. And that's the, that's the real tragedy of all this. All right. Now you only have like two minutes, but uh, why now? Why not before? I mean, not that before was any better, but. Right. Why is he doing this now? Yeah. Uh, There's several different touch points. Um, You know, a lot of people have said the back and forth of American presidential administrations between uh, ones that were a little bit more pro-NATO expansion like Obama's and Biden's, uh, combined with Trump's in the middle that was much more, from Putin's point of view, much more friendly to Russia is part of it. I think I think the danger in that is removing the Ukrainians themselves from the equation, and um, you know Ukraine elected in 2018 elected uh, Zelensky as president, and he's somebody who made very very clear he wanted to be more in the Western mold, move more towards the West, away from Russia, and that combined with a number of other factors seemed to seal the deal for Putin. But it's clear looking at his plans what he's been doing. That this has been a long-term plan of his to slowly move in the direction of taking these areas back into the Russian Empire, as he wants to call it. And so he's had Ukraine on his mind for a really long time. It's easy to say that this is all about security. It's all about last-minute stuff. It's all about the now. He's been planning this for a while. And so considering that Zelensky wanted to move move west faster, I think it in some ways it forced his hand a little sooner maybe than he wanted. But that's just a speculation on my part. Interesting. Okay. Well, we didn't get to all the questions, uh, which well, then we'll keep going. We'll keep going. Week. How about that? Perfect. Okay. Yeah. So because sadly, this will still be in the news next week. It totally will. So uh, yeah. final wrap up. You can do that. I would simply say, um, you know, the opportunity that we have here is to become not only more historically aware of what's happening and what's happened in Russia and Ukraine, how we got here, but also more aware of how we got here in the United States, our, our allies in Europe, and to really get a better sense of what's happening and what has happened so that we can make some better choices that will be a little more long-lasting when this war is over and may the war be over soon. That's all I'll say for today. We'll continue more next week. All right. Final final word? Chins up, everyone. Just keep on going. Thanks, Thanks Stacey. Absolutely.